0: You're listening to Robert
1: Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Nora. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? I can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Nora Belrose. You are at Eleuther. AI, a nonprofit AI research group that has kind of an interesting history that maybe we'll talk about. And you are head of interpretability, uh, which is interesting to me because that means one thing you're doing is trying to figure out exactly how these like large language models in particular, I guess, work, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I'm interested in. Uh, and I'm interested in the fact that it's uh, more of a mystery than one might have imagined at one point. <laughs> um how these AIs actually work. I mean, more of a mystery even to the people who built them. Um, uh, Also, uh, interpretability is closely related to the field of alignment. The idea being that once, the more we understand about how they work, the easier it may be to align AI with human values, human interests. So reduce the chances that it will kill us all and in, in a quest for world domination or cause harms in less dramatic ways. Um, So I want to talk about all that. Now, one interesting thing about you uh, compared to some people who are doing alignment related research is that you're not that much of a doomer, right? You're more of an optimist than some of my past guests. So I guess the the standard question to ask is uh, in your neck of the woods, I mean, in Northern California, the standard Mm -hmm. question is what is your P doom? Yeah. So I, I'll start off by saying that, you know, i I don't really like the the
0: term p- doom very much. I think um, you know, many people who would even self-identify as doomers would also would also say that they don't really like the the notion of p- doom mainly because it's it's just kind of unclear what you mean by by doom, right, Doom? P-Doom I was gonna ask things. that.
1: Does it yeah. mean out and out extinction or does it mean just something pretty bad? because pretty bad is a pretty vague term
0: right. So I guess what I will say is, um, so if you're kind of narrowing your focus down to failure modes that look like you know the ai went rogue and then either killed like all humans or like took over in like a permanent way and it like most of the value of the future is destroyed something where like the ai goes rogue i i am like on record as saying that i think this is like less than 1% likely i'm not sure i would say it's like less than Basically, I would say it's like yeah, le- like less than one percent, maybe not less than like point 0.1%, but something like that.
1: Our audience um, just breathed a, a collective sigh of relief. <laughs> um, um. So, and and you mean like kind of rogue? You're talking about rogue rogue behavior plus a concentration of power in the AI. I mean, there may be individual AIs that, in some sense, go rogue and go wry, and yeah. some something bad happens. Um. What do you what do you think the average person in Northern California, in kind of roughly your line of work, what do you think they're thinking of? But when they say P doom, because the funny thing is they give you an exact number, it kind of reminds me of artificial general intelligence, right? People say, Well, I think AGI will be achieved in like October of 2031. And you say, And what do you mean by AGI? And they say, Well, I don't know, it's kind of it's big actually. So what do you think? the average person in your culture means by doom.
0: Right. So I think that depends a lot. I'm um, sorry. You said uh, doom first doom
1: first doom. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I had thought for a while that they meant out and out extinction. That's what <laughs> Eliezer Yudkowsky, doomer in chief means, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But, but um, do you think most people who throw the term around and even give you a number don't mean that?
0: I think it's it's tricky to say. I, I do think that anecdotally, I don't have like hard survey data on this, but anecdotally, it does kind of seem like there has been a shift, somewhat of a shift away from concerns about um, like AI is going rogue and more, more discussion of like, um, you know, maybe there's like uh, misuse, you know, like terrorists mm-hmm. are able to create like, you know, weapons that like, eventually you know like causes cause humanity to go extinct or or perhaps governments misuse AI to like install totalitarian states that can't be overthrown um things like that it I, I do sense that there has been kind of a shift um but yeah I think you know you mentioned my culture I think it really depends what you mean by my culture I think if you're considering like um like all people in AI research in general I think like, Most of those people are like not that doomy. And to the extent that they are doomy, they're like mostly focused on like misuse type concerns. Mm. Um, but if you focus more specifically on like Berkeley, California, or Mm -hmm. like um some of the people that I that I do um, you know, collaborate with on research and stuff around here, um, I mean, they they are they tend to be like more worried about AI's going rogue um, just because. I don't know, for a lot of historical reasons, people have kind of like, people who are worried about AI's AI going rogue have like geographically concentrated in like Berkeley and to a lesser extent like London.
1: Hmm. So, Interesting. Uh, and Berkeley is also kind of the center for a lot of Im- important work on AI, right? I mean, it's kind of, I, I almost hear about it as much as uh, as kind of Stanford, it seems like uh, these days. but. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that UC Berkeley is,
0: is doing. Um, and there's also, I mean, there's, like, a lot of people that I know, um, like, live in Berkeley, but they work at, like, either, like, OpenAI or Anthropic, which is just across the Bay in, in San Francisco. So, you know, SF and Berkeley are, like, pretty,
1: Okay.
0: I mean, they're geographically
1: close, so it makes yeah. sense that there's, like, a lot of explanation. So you used to be quite a bit more of a doomer right and you know yes. your, your p doom considerably and it was there kind of one simple reason for that or yeah so i think you know i first became
0: like really worried about like ais going rogue um when i read nick bostrom's book superintelligence um mm-hmm. which is I about that-
1: like 10 years 10 years old or something Yeah, right. I think it came out in like 2013 or somewhere around there. Um, Very influential. I mean, all all these people kind of read that, right? Like Sam Altman Mm -hmm. read it and so on. Yeah, Elon Musk. and Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I
0: actually read it a bit, I mean, a few years after it came out. I think it was in like 2018 or something like that. And I read it at a time when I I really didn't know much about AI at all, honestly. I mean, I, I was familiar with like computers. I did like programming and stuff, but AI specifically, I really did not know that much about. Um, but i read it and like kind of in the abstract it seemed like pretty compelling like he made the case that like by default when you build um, an ai that's like about human level whatever human level means but about human level um it will be able to recursively improve itself very rapidly and also there's kind of this idea within superintelligence that we're going to kind of write down what's called a utility function the utility function is just like a mathematical like formal description of like what the ai is supposed to value what its goal is supposed to be mm-hmm. and the idea it it's like I, I think bostrom mostly assumed that like we would like there would be like programmers sitting down and like writing out here's the utility function and the worry was that well this seems like very hard it seems very hard to like formalize human values um, and like write it down mathematically because they're just complicated and like not really amenable to being formalized. and be- and because of that the worry was like well we're going to misspecify the ai's utility function um on the first try but then once we turn the ai on and it's like smarter than humans it will resist attempts to like to modify the utility function that that was like kind of the key worry that both bostrom and um were like first kind of worried about um hmm. and i mean i can tell you about like why i don't really think that makes a lot of yeah, sense. yeah I, I
1: i'd like to hear that so this is the idea was that like to be clear on what utility function is in the first place like it would have a very precisely specified kind of guiding value almost right like yeah, I mean so kind of sort of by definition
0: it is like precise. It's it's a mathematically precise mm-hmm. kind of object. And the idea is, you know, it, it's it's a function because it takes in sort of a description of like the world, or or perhaps it takes in like a set of observations that the AI has made, um, and then it like processes them and outputs a number. And if that number is high, that means like the AI is supposed to be like happy, it's like a good state of the world. And if it's like a low number, then it's oh, okay. supposed to be like sad, it's like a bad state of the world. And it's trying to like maximize the utility function, like get as high, like be, you know. So in in
1: deciding what makes it happy, we would screw Mm up. We we would, is that uh, right? Yeah, I think this was, you know. We mean happy metaphorically for those who don't think it actually has a subjective state. We just mean the thing it keeps doing, the thing that's defined as a, as a, as kind of positive reinforcement for it in a sense. Yeah, the, I think a goal. Yeah,
0: and I, I think this was definitely like if if you look back at like Eliezer's early work and Ostrom's early work, like this was a pretty important. I think actually on YouTube you can like look at like Eliezer did a a lecture at UC Berkeley in like 2016, I believe, where he was like kind of laying out why he thinks that we're like AI will likely, or like at least why it's like very hard to like make an AI that doesn't kill everyone and of the center piece of his argument is that the ai will need to have a utility function we're going to need to like write it down or like program it and this is very hard Mm -hmm. Um, and i guess maybe to kind of preview why i i think like what we've seen in the last few years with the development of things like large language models um, is that basically we don't need to have a human sit down and program like okay here's like all of human values what we we're, what we're actually doing is we're using uh, machine learning to sort of implicitly extract human values and human common sense etc human concepts out of all of the data that we've amassed on the internet and so it, it in some sense it's a much more natural way of, of learning human values and human concepts i think because you know obviously when you have a a child, like you don't program a, a like a utility function into it. What you do is you just like you know the, the child learns from the people around it and just kind of implicitly like becomes enculturated mm-hmm. um, in, into the culture and kind of develops certain values. So I think we're we're doing a similar thing with with AIs, and I think that because of that, like this this kind of traditional argument for doom doesn't make much sense.
1: So. In other words, I mean, if you large language models train on all this text that was generated by people and they're trained to say the kinds of things that people say, according to mm-hmm. this text. So it stands to reason that the values implicit in the things they say would be have some pretty close correspondence to human values in, in, mm-hmm. in some sense. I'm not sure that's enough to, re, that, to reassure people, but that's what you mean by the values are implicit in it right and they kind of emerge from the training and the data set and the fine tuning and everything and uh, and you don't program into it values per se right yeah
0: I, I think values are sort of a special case of just concepts right like i think um you know for a long time in ai like back in like you know like well before this new kind of deep learning revolution that we've seen recently Um, It's been kind of hard to kind of precisely specify like human concepts. Like what is the concept of goodness? What is the concept of a dog even? Like how do you you, like look at the pixels of an image and determine whether there's a dog in there or not? Like that actually turns out to be like very difficult because the concept of a dog is just like actually complicated um, when you kind of like try to specify in terms of pixels. So there's like a general problem in AI is like trying to kind of get computer programs to understand human concepts and i think that yeah deep learning has just largely solved it honestly i think it's mm-hmm. it's like pretty clear that that through learning and and big data we can learn these concepts and by extension we can we can learn values
1: right i mean that is it seems to me that is kind of the revolution i mean when i first started thinking and writing about ai just as a journalist the assumption at least that i had was that like you know, if you had something that could talk intelligently, you would have to program into it the meaning of the words and figure out a way to do that. But it turns out that, no, um, you just teach this thing to predict sentences, and then it forms internally, a, in a sense, a landscape of meaning uh, where it arrays words. But it figures that out itself, right? Um. And and so, too, for, with concepts. And so, we there's this thing called concept erasure that I've heard you talk about a little, like the idea that you might want to find a concept in the large language model and erase it. I guess you might want to do that for alignment reasons. Is that right? I mean, like, before we talk about how you'd find a concept, what kind of concept would you want to erase? Right, yeah. So, I think
0: um, this is a good question, so one, one area in which, like, concept might be useful is during um, safety evaluations. So, um, so, like, for GPT-4, before GPT-4 was released, um, OpenAI did, well, they did both kind of internal safety evaluations where they're kind of testing what GPT-4 would do, um, you know, when you kind of prompt it to hack into a you know a, a computer or something like that. They did internal things, and they also um, actually asked an like an outside organization to do safety evaluations. Now, in these safety evaluations, there's there's a worry that some people have, and and honestly, I'm I'm not that worried about it. But but there's a worry that some people have, and and it's at least kind of theoretically possible that um, the AI might like during the safety evaluation, it might notice that it is being evaluated, basically. Uh, if it's smart enough like maybe it it like kind of realizes that it's being evaluated and then behaves differently like because it realizes that it's being evaluated um it will pretend to do you know what you want it to do it will pretend to be aligned or safe but then in deployment um when it's like not being evaluated it will do something different and so one thing you might want to do to sort of um uh you know, reduce the chance of of stuff like this happening is to erase specific types of information from the AI's brain that we think it might be able to use to like tell whether it's in, uh, whether it's being evaluated or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the specifics of this could get like kind of technical. It would depend a lot on like exactly the setup that you're using for evaluation, but like you could, you know, I don't know, like try to make sure it can't like, try to re- uh, erase the concept of, like, the date, right? Like, if it, um, you know, it might, uh, if it's, like, it might be able to, like, look at the date and say, like, oh, it's, like, 2050, I'm probably in deployment. Um, you know, that, that's, like, something that that people have, like, thought about. And so you might want to, like, erase the concept of date or something like that from from, from its from its brain. Okay. Uh, does that kind of make sense?
1: Um, kind of. I mean, I want to get more into this, the issue of finding concepts in these things. But first I I have a question about how reassured we should or shouldn't be by like the way the AIs implicitly absorb values Mm -hmm. by virtue of becoming good at human conversation kind Mm -hmm. of. Right. And I mean, in a way, I, I would think it might be the opposite of reassuring, because like when I first heard the Yudkowsky scenarios like, oh, the A.I. will arise and want to dominate and kill us all. I I I, I thought, no, you're assuming A.I. Is, is like humans. I mean, humans do like power. They do like to dominate. Not all of them are, you know, are obsessed with it, but enough of them uh, that, uh, you know, that is it's it's reflected in the kind of text A.I. would train on. And, you know, uh, and of course humans also, they can be devious, they can cheat. You know, there was the famous example, uh, you mentioned kind of the evaluation of, uh, GPT-4 and there was the famous example of, you know, the CAPTCHA, lying about Mm -hmm. the CAPTCHA when it was given the task of recruiting people on, I guess, some task rabbit or some platform and, uh, like texting with them and, uh, it oh it, it i know they it was going to recruit them to solve captchas and one of one of the actual humans it was dealing with to do that it was trying to recruit said um wait a second are you a bot is that why you want me to to solve this captcha and it said no no i just have eye problems or something and my assumption was that that reflected the fact that it had trained on text in which people not infrequently mislead other people to get things. Does that sound crazy? Um
0: yeah, well so I don't um sorry I don't think it's crazy to think well so I, I don't think it's crazy to think that um like AIs might do this this type of deception um in the future. Um sorry maybe I missed the, like the exact question that you were asking. Was it well, just the
1: exact, the exact question is I mean you seem kind of reassured by the fact that, you know, the AIs are training on human texts, absorbing human values. And I'm saying, well, actually, humans can be very power hungry. They can be deceitful. So like a lot of things you'd worry about might be inculcated in them by virtue of them training on human texts. Mm -hmm. And I thought the CAPTCHA thing was an example, but I don't honestly know whether why, why it performed yeah. that deceit
0: i don't i don't yeah and and to be honest i'm like not super um familiar with like that example either so i i okay. won't comment on it um but what i will say yeah so i think i actually agree with you so i think um a lot of so people like elias minkowski um and people who are like quite worried about um like ai's going rogue i think their general kind of like like overall what, what they tend to think is that ais will be very alien to us they will not have our values and they you know someone like eliezer would say well you know the AI is going to have alien values and it will want to dominate not because it got its domination instinct from humans but just because that's kind of inherent in what it means to have values or there's some kind of like in principle logical argument for why you would want to to dominate so so that's how they tend to think about it is that the ai will be too alien um but I, I agree that like, you know, so so here I am, I'm saying that AIs would probably be like quite human-like. I agree that like just being human-like is not sufficient to be aligned or safe or, or friendly because like obviously humans can be um, power seeking, et cetera. And I think in the like one percent of scenarios where I think like an AI could go rogue, I actually think it's it's like pretty plausible that like the reason the AI would go rogue is that basically, it learned to have, like, kind of instincts of, like, domination or, or um, you know, revenge or, or, you know, some, like, negative mm-hmm. um, aspects of human nature. And we weren't able to kind of, like, train those instincts out of it. Um But I guess maybe to, to get to the point of, like, why I'm not super worried about this is that I think we have two basic um, tools that we can use to really um, kind of reduce... Kind of basically uh, to uh, increase the influence of our better angels. So like Steven Pinker has this this mm-hmm. like, well, he like wrote a book called Better, better Angels right. for Nature. So, um, you know, we have like two different tools that we can use to kind of increase the influence of, of our better angels and like decrease um, the influence of, of our, uh, whatever the opposite of better angels is. Anyway, so the- <laughs> worst,
1: worst devils, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh. Um, right, so the first tool is to just, do really good uh, filtration um, and curation of the training data right so I think some of the the earlier language models like GPT3 for example they were trained on essentially just a, a scrape of the internet there was like very little curation that they actually did uh, I think they used like Reddit karma uh, or something but like it was, it was it was not it was not really um, very well curated and so there were like a lot of examples of um, uh, you know, b- bad behavior in in that text. But increasingly, you know, what we're seeing is that people are realizing that the quality of the data matters a lot. Um, and so we're increasingly seeing people, you know, looking into ways to like carefully curate the data that you're you're training the AI on. And also, um, what some people are doing is using synthetic data. So they'll basically take an AI that we've already trained, like a language model that we've already trained, ask it to generate a bunch of. Uh, new text. And then uh, that, you know, and we're like prompting, we're prompting the AI to make sure that the, the, the new text is generating is like, um, you know, not toxic and is, is educational, et cetera. Um, But anyway, basically training new AIs on the synthetic data that is generated by like the previous generation AIs.
1: And what is Um, the value of that supposed to be? I, originally I was hearing concerns about that. Like, there would be degeneration of data from human to 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 AI generated and then it would train on that and get even worse and so on. Mm-hmm. But you're saying there's value in Yeah. Right. I mean I, I definitely think there's ways that it
0: could go wrong, but I think overall it's like quite valuable and like a like a pretty good direction. Um in a couple different ways. So I think um, you know, if, if we're talking about safety, I think um we can use the synthetic data. Um basically make sure that there's like very few examples um in the training data that um are kind of basically we we want the ai to know about uh you know the the bad things that humans do but we don't want it to actually imitate those bad things mm-hmm. right um and so basically when you're generating the synthetic data what you want to do is you want to sort of uh there's sort of like an art to it and, and we're kind of like just starting to learn how to do this but but so, you, you want to like is yeah, is so if, bad
1: behavior described disapprovingly or something or
0: yeah i mean so that that could be one way to do it um it could be kind of in, in quotes or something like that there, there's a lot of different ways to mm-hmm. do it and i think we're, we're just now at, at the beginning of like trying to understand how to do this well but i think um yeah, I think I think we we have some empirical evidence that 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 this does actually reduce like so
1: that that's interesting. So you're in effect making it aware of kind of all dimensions of human behavior, so that it can speak intelligently about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but right. you're 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 uh, you're you're making only some of that behavior the kind it will in a sense emulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is
0: so there is one uh, paper that. So like the, the simplest possible thing to do, um, which was described in a paper like last year, um, is to literally just add two special words to the AI's vocabulary, like good and bad, but like good and like special like letters or whatever. Like it's it's like different. My, from, like, my parents did that
1: with me, um, by <laughs> the way. It's it's not it's not an original technique, but go ahead. But yeah,
0: you just say like, like special tokens like good with like capital letters and g and and bad with capital letters. And then basically you Surround, like you train it, like you train the AI like usual, but you surround the like positive, uh, uh, like positive role models with like good, uh, like Hmm. tokens. And then you surround the like negative role models with like the bad tokens. And then basically, when you then use the AI, like after it's been trained, you just stick the good uh, token, like the the good word uh, at the beginning of the prompt. And then it will, like, then it knows, like, okay, I should be, like, emulating, like, the good role models I've seen during training. Um, hopefully that and, kind of makes sense.
1: And uh, and you could make that just kind of a default thing. Like, in other words, yeah. before you send it out there, you're, you are basically putting good before every yeah. prompt that anybody writes. Yeah, yeah basically. Huh. And that, is it possible to say, like, what kind of specific behavior that would discourage?
0: Yeah. So I think it really depends a lot on like the specific use case and what your, you know, what what your goals are. Right. I mean, I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, companies like OpenAI and Anthropic are, um, you know, they're they're trying to uh, prevent their AIs from being used for certain types of things like, I don't know, hacking or like, you know, creating, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, in some cases, it's like creating porn, or like there's like certain things that they're like trying to prevent, um, and I think it's just going to be really context dependent, like what you're, what you actually consider to be bad. But,
1: um. so, um, back to concepts. Maybe we could yeah. s- kind of start uh, see if I've got a basic understanding of kind of how these things work. So, um. You know. So you have, well, let me let me ask it this way. The uh they have these things that they call neurons. Mm -hmm. And are they are they thought to be somewhat genuinely analogous to human neurons? I mean, in the sense that a bunch of them are connected to a bunch of others in in some way, or at least communicate with others in some sense. I mean yeah so at, at like a very
0: high level you could say that they're analogous. I think the one of the big disanalogies between these artificial neurons and like real neurons in the brain is that they actually have more connections than um the usual like neuron inside a, a human brain. So like human like human mm, brains mm. are are sparse in a sense that like you know one neuron will tend to like connect with maybe like a thousand other neurons. I'm just That might be off, but like something like that, Um, but it's not connected, like all the other neurons in the entire brain Um, with artificial neural networks. uh, They tend to be what's called fully connected or like this is like like a a common architecture, Mm -hmm. which means that like you have these layers um, and like all the neurons at one layer are connected to all the neurons at the next layer. Um, So, yeah, there's like quite dense connectivity between between these neurons
1: now is the number of uh connections the same as the number of parameters um not
0: quite they're like somewhat so the parameters are well they are close but not not exactly um mm-hmm. it's it's close because um most of the parameters are determining the connection weights um like how strongly the activation of this neuron should influence the activation of this like neuron mm-hmm. ahead of it um, and whether it should be like a positive influence or like a negative influence. Um, but there are some parameters that like do other things. So it's not like an
1: exact. Okay. And so back to like so my understanding is it's a fairly generic learning machine, um, in the sense that well, let's take the, the case of predicting words. Okay. So you you give it the first part of an actual sentence that was found out there on the internet, and you say, okay. Predict the next word, and and it 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 has already it has a system for translating this input into output, which is mm-hmm. the guess about the next word, and basically, uh, if it if it magically gets it exactly right, then you would say, then that's positive reinforcement for the specific uh you know kind of weights whatever the activation levels of the connections, however you want to put it um, that already that exists at that point. Right. And, uh, and anyway, when it gets negative, when it doesn't get it right, it kind of tries again and adjusts the weights to some extent. Mm -hmm. It just does this over and over and over. And there are these feedback mechanisms, I guess uh, what back propagation or something that make it, that make it not a merely random exercise. In other words, when it tries the next time, it has some feedback about what's likely to to make yeah. it better as opposed to worse. and And so it just does that now, I have another question, but so far, is that kind of close to right? yeah,
0: that, that's that's roughly correct. I guess I would just say it's it's actually highly non-random. So there's actually mm-hmm. um the algorithms that we use actually have, Convergence proofs um, under certain assumptions, but the assumptions are like usually met. Where basically, because every like every iteration, you're only changing the connection weights a little bit, like not not a ton, just a little bit. You can prove that um, the like direction in which you're moving the the um, the weights is going to uh, improve performance um, or reduce the the cost or like the error. Mm-hmm. At least by like a little bit, um, so yeah, it is it is like
1: yeah. so it doesn't it doesn't just say right or wrong in a certain sense, broadly speaking the the, the, the feedback isn't just right or wrong. it's you're getting closer or you're yeah. getting you're, you're getting further away. Um, the the uh okay, so the kind of amazing thing is that, again, none of this involves telling it what these words mean. It's just they're just symbols to it. And mm-hmm. yet, in the course of getting better it does build a kind of semantic landscape. I mean, the -hmm. the very highly simplified version of this would be suppose that you were rating uh, uh, fruits on like two dimensions, X and Y. Um, One is size and one is roundness. So on, you know, like limes compared to oranges would have the same roundness thing on the X axis or whatever, but on the Y axis, of course, limes would be lower And bananas, whatever you, you get it. You, you, you could in principle map every fruit along those two dimensions. And these machines create like tens of thousands of dimensions and not all of them are semantic. We should specify that, but just kind of put it aside. Just think about the semantic ones. Um, and uh, I guess my, and that is part of the way it generates such good results. And then, well, to add a little, so the the input, the sentence, the first part of the sentence that it's trying to predict the rest of is quantified and goes into the system. And if, if the connections have gotten to a point where they're really good, in other words, the model is mature, it's gone through learning and everything, then they will generate uh, a number that's a bunch of dimensions. It's like three comma five, whatever, you know, yeah. uh, like tens of thousands of dimensions. And then and that will represent a point in space, space I can't conceive of because it's more than three dimensions, but a point in space. And the machine will pick, will look at that point in space and and. Pick the word that's closest to that and say, "Okay, this is the one. or else if it's you know, if it's supposed to be a little more random than that, it'll choose randomly among the several, closer or whatever. but that's that's what it does, right? It, uh, roughly speaking, um yeah, at, at a high level, I, I would say, yeah, I think maybe the
0: I'm not sure how important this is, but um maybe one detail that you didn't mention is that um, so all the language models that we we currently use, uh, and this is true even for like not language models, they their output is not um, they don't directly output a word or like like a token. What they output is a probability distribution. They mm-hmm. so say like oh this this word is like thirty percent likely. This word is you know mm-hmm. whatever for like all the words that are in the vocabulary, which is usually like fifty thousand or something. Um, and so they output a probability distribution, and then you can like sample from that distribution. Um, and that's that's actually why language models are not they're like often not deterministic Mm -hmm. um, because there's like this random sampling that's going on Um, Mm -hmm. but the the probability distribution is kind of important because it means that it's really easy to say to give like fine rank feedback to say like okay you should put like a little bit more probability on this and a Mm -hmm. little bit less probability on this Mm -hmm. because it's all continuous and because it's all continuous that's actually why the these back-propagation algorithms work so well is because it's continuous and we can say like a little
1: nudge in this direction will make you like a little bit better Mm -hmm. in predicting the next. uh, Okay. So, but we can still think of it, of the number comes up with, well, of the kind of coming up with a number that specifies a point in space and then the most probable answers in that distribution are near that point in space, in multi-dimensional space. Now, one question I have is, when they first like built these models, did they know that the way that the the machine would handle the challenge would be to build a multi-dimensional semantic space? And again, there are also syntactic dimensions and so on. but uh, or was that was even that kind of a surprise so
0: yeah, I think it was it was a surprise to many people although although not everyone I mean, I think they're so there, there's this idea in kind of linguistics and computational linguistics called the uh, distributional. It's called distributional semantics, mm-hmm. which just means that the meaning of a word—it's kind of like a hypothesis, I guess. It just says that the meaning of a word is like entirely or mostly determined by the like words that tend to be uh, nearby it, um, or, like the, the words that it tends to be associated with. Um, and this this idea was around for like in some form for like maybe over a hundred years there's like mm-hmm. structuralism and so there's like ideas kind of floating around like that and I think if you take the distributional semantics seriously if you take the idea that like words get their meaning from like the relation with other words seriously well it it kind of makes sense that if you build a machine um whose job is to predict the next word given the previous words like it that's like almost the same thing as determining like the meaning um. But but of course, not everybody agrees with distributional semantics, and and you know, or, and even if they did, they weren't really like thinking about it in that way. So so it it was a surprise to many people, but not everyone.
1: So it shouldn't shock us. But like, do we know of an actual person who, before they actually started making these machines work, said, "Oh, I know how it's going to do this. It's going to be yeah." You know. So I, right. So I think I think like um,
0: probably. Well, so I, I guess I would say people like Yann um, LeCun. Um, uh, so he's like at uh, at Meta. He's now. at Meta. He's, yeah, um, yeah, but he's been in like kind of pushing for um, like deep neural networks for for decades. Um, I believe Ilya Sutskever would also be in this camp. Um, he's well, actually, I'm not sure what his current status at OpenAI is, but at least for for a while, <laughs> he was at OpenAI. Um, there, there are like certain people who have been kind of pushing for like deep learning and 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 deep neural mm-hmm. networks for 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 decades, and I think they mostly kind of understood that like something like this should work. But mm-hmm. um, I think mainly for computational reasons, like it was, it just really it takes a lot of uh, computing power to like train these models. They weren't able to scale them up to the no. the sufficient scale to kind of see um, what we're seeing now. But I think they, they were pretty even... visionary.
1: In any event, we didn't have to specify that approach to the solution, right? We just mm-hmm. built the learning machine and the machine yep. built that approach, which is kind of amazing. so, mm-hmm. Now, my next question, which will bring us back a little closer to alignment, is this idea of concepts residing somewhere in there and our trying to find the representation of concepts, uh, possibly for purposes of altering them or erasing them for the greater good, kind of, I gather. Yeah. Um, how how close are we to that? Now, I know there was a paper not that long ago um, by, among other people, Dan Hendricks, called Representation Engineering, the Top-Down Approach to AI Transparency, where they talked a little about concepts, I think the example they used was just a concept like a dog or something, not, not something very abstract, but I, I thought they were showing that you could actually, once, once you identified the concept, you could reach in and change the properties associated. Like you could make the LLM think the dogs mm-hmm. meow instead of bark or something. Yeah, it exactly. That, that is, that kind of thing we now know is in principle doable and we have some idea how to do it.
0: Yeah, so I, it depends a lot on like the exact concept and the exact model, et cetera. But like, in some cases, like we, we can't actually do this. Like we've actually like shown that you can like locate the concept and, and edit it. And it like has the, like, has the effects that you would expect
1: roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And is it possible to say like to a layperson like me, who has only heard what we've said so far about roughly speaking, the way these things work, like, what form does the concept assume in the model? Yeah, right. So I, I think
0: you were mentioning earlier about, um, I'm not sure if you use use the word embedding, but uh, the, the word is Im- embedding. What you were talking about, like uh, the model creates like a bunch of different uh, numbers. That's like a high ah. dimensional space. Um, yeah. So like the model kind of like, if uh, yeah, so I mentioned earlier, like these models tend to have layers. They might have like 10, 20, 50 layers. And, like, kind of inside of each layer, it's doing, like, mathematical operations on these um, kind of points in a space of more than three dimensions.
1: And are these layers of, of, of neurons? These are layers of neurons? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so and it kind of moves yeah. from top to bottom. If you imagine, like, levels of layers of neurons, it mm-hmm. the input moves through. Yep. And Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, it was fine.
0: Um, yeah. So, like, each of these layers is kind of operating on these embeddings, which are points or, or vectors um, in this like high-dimensional space, could be like thousands of dimensions. Um, and what we tend to find is that there, like, if you kind of specify a uh, like a human concept, like you mentioned, dog, or like true and false, or like, uh, like you know male, female, or you know something like that. Um you can usually find a direction um in this high dimensional space uh, that is like is associated or kind of encodes this concept.
1: Uh, by um, direction you mean mm-hmm. like from one point in multi dimensional space toward another point? It's like Yeah, it's, sort of, it's yeah. It's, it's sort like sort a like word if, if is a point in space, and it's, is this like a line in space or what? Yeah, so, um,
0: the way to think about it is, like, um, if you start at one point, um, and then you, like, move, you, like, move in this direction, then, you know, I guess you could think of it as, like, you know, uh, it's, like, north, south, east, and west, it's, like, northwest, southeast, um, it's, like, left and right, it's, it's kind of that type of thing, um, but, Hmm. like, it's, like, the high-dimensional, like, uh, Generalization of that that type of concept, hmm. so it's like if you start at this point and then you go like northeast from that point, um, then uh you will like tend to cause the model to think that the input is like um, true rather than false, or you'll like cause it to think that it, there's like a, it's more likely that there's a dog there or something like that um that's kind of the idea
1: yeah. I'm not sure my brain is capable of uh, conceptualizing this thing, but it's almost like a local kind of current or direct wind direction or something. I mean, it's like, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I
0: mean, maybe maybe another way of thinking about it is like, you can like, imagine the set of all the examples. Uh, I don't know. Maybe let's think of like, yeah, I I guess we'll, we'll, we'll stay thinking about like language models and you'll, um feed the model a bunch of true statements uh true statements and a bunch of false statements and you like look at their um embeddings like the embeddings of the true statements and embedding and false stu- statements these are like big kind of clouds of points right um and then you can look at like okay what's the like center of these like these like point clouds like there's like uh, if you like take the average of all the points that's like the centroid or the center of, of each point of that. So, okay so then you have like the centroid or the center of all the true statements the center of all the false statements and then you're like okay now there's like a a direction you can like consider mm-hmm. like the the line that like takes you from one of these
1: centroids to the other it gets truer as you travel it
0: yeah, yeah yeah right exactly so yeah so like as you move from the false centroid to the true centroid you're like getting true and, true and true and then so this is you can call it like uh the truth direction um it's like the difference between the center of the true statements and the center of the false statements um and we we in fact find and this is like part of um like my paper on concept ratio that you kind of alluded to earlier we in fact find that like doing this exact operation, like looking at the point cloud, finding the centroid, um, and then like looking at the the kind of direction that takes you from one centroid to the other centroid, like this this direction is actually the the direction that you care about and the and the direction that you can like manipulate, like like use to manipulate the model and so forth.
1: And you've demonstrated that you can reach in and successfully manipulate it and and change its output yeah
0: um so that, that's like partially my work and partially the work of some other people, um including um uh like Max tegmark, um his lab, and um Sam marks, I believe, mm-hmm. um is one of one of his students, um postdoc, but uh, anyway, uh, they they did a, a paper recently that was kind of uh, in, along the same lines where they like were able to manipulate the model's beliefs um using this technique.
1: Mm-hmm. um okay i mean i guess one obstacle to my comprehension among, <laughs> among others including my brain uh is like i hadn't imagined i had imagined that words might have a location in multi-dimensional space but i hadn't imagined like statements mm-hmm. uh having that i mean i know they have like one thing they did i don't know if this is related to your work i gather like it had to do with like, what was it is the Eiffel Tower? Uh, so the Eiffel tower, it kind of knew that the Eiffel tower was in Paris. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then if you change that to it's thinking the Eiffel tower is in Rome, you can, this isn't the exact example, but then you could get it to say that the Eiffel tower is close to the Vatican, which is almost like logic, but yeah. which in some respects, these things are bad at, but, um, so that that's the kind of thing we're talking about here, right? Like the uh, factual. It, it not- is related, yeah. Yeah, it's related, not the same thing. But anyway, you know what I might what I mean when I ask, like, wait a second, you're saying that statements uh, or facts are also have a place in this space, but you're saying they they kind of do.
0: Yeah. So they they do. Um, although you are, yeah. You, I guess you are pointing at, at an interesting point, which is that. Um so at, at least in like the, the language models that we usually use currently, um there actually is only like one embedding per word. Technically it's a token, but it's basically the same thing. One embedding per word. Um and there isn't strictly speaking an embedding for an entire statement or sentence. But what we find is that we can usually locate a particular we can locate a word inside of a statement that Sort of summarizes or or kind of carries most of the the semantic content of the entire statement that we we took it from mm-hmm. um, in particular like um, uh, punctuation like like the period at the end of the sentence uh, tends to contain a lot of semantic content about the entire statement that came before it um, there's a paper actually out of a uh, Luther that that found that um, and so yeah you can usually find a word that kind of summarizes
1: or, or contains the information of the whole fact that you're interested in so am i right in thinking then that when it says a dog barks uh it, it isn't just that it's repeating what it's heard i mean maybe in that case it is who knows but there are cases where the fact that a dog barks or the conception of a dog as something that barks has a coherent representation that involves some kind of pattern of information or something that in principle you could point to so to speak you you could you could locate it for you know and kind of uh manipulate it sufficiently well to just change the con- the concept or change the fact right um yeah so i i
0: guess i'll say um it uh it it kind of depends on like what type of information you're you're interested in like i think that um if what you're interested in is like um causing a model to um like if what you're interested in is like taking a particular statement and like causing the model to like treat this statement differently um, by like manipulating a, one of its concepts on this particular statement i think that's like fairly easy. and there's still, still some work to do there but i think we're like we kind of know how to do it probably um but if what you're interested in is like editing the model's like behavior overall just like on like on any input um like generally changing it so that it it thinks that dogs don't bark anymore or something like that mm-hmm. um we do have some tools to do that um i'm not going to say you know we, we have some tools but they it, it i think it is just generally a, a somewhat harder problem and it's um like the tools that we have right now aren't completely robust like what will tend to happen is that you know you'll you'll edit the model to say like, dogs don't bark or um the Eiffel power is in is in rome and it will act that way in like a variety of contexts context but not quite all context like sometimes it will kind of remember it's like past mm-hmm. um uh you know like the, the the correct answer or like the answer that it, it believed before um so yeah i think it's still somewhat of a an open problem to like thoroughly edit uh edit these like beliefs hopefully that makes sense
1: but but the fact that uh if you want to get it to in a lot of contexts, say dogs, meow or the or, or, yeah. or whatever or yeah. the, the the Eiffel tower is is nowhere near the Louvre or whatever. Yeah, um the fact that you can do it the way you're doing it rather than having to go back and change all the training data and start mm-hmm. all over, yeah, uh, suggests to you pretty strongly, and I gather to researchers generally, yes, yes there is such a thing as a representation of concepts yeah. in these machines. And that's mm-hmm. and that's uh, related to but different from the mapping of individual words in the semantic space. Yeah, I would agree. So this is kind of amazing. Uh, I mean, is it your view that uh, as it does this? I mean, a term I've used when I first heard about, like, the fact that you know the the semantics emerge rather than being built in is like. In a way, the machines are kind of reverse engineering the human mind almost. Uh, in other words, they're taking the output, just the surface manifestation of a human mind, the way it puts out language and response to other and stuff like that. And it doesn't even know in the, what the language means. And yet, in order to become good at doing what humans do, it starts kind of, it, it builds things that are somewhat comparable to features of the human mind. So, that's kind. That is kind of amazing. I mean, do you have an intuition for how precisely it does that? Like, like as you said, the, the idea that what humans do is sem- is kind of a semantic mapping mm-hmm. is still just a theory. I mean, it's going to turn out that it winds up telling us how the human mind works as it gets better and better. Yeah,
0: I, I guess maybe. Um to kind of rephrase what you just asked so are you kind of asking like how similar we should expect like like how similar are are these language models to humans or is it like a
1: yeah in other words is it just building these internal mechanisms that that just happen to work well enough or or does it tend to be the case that it it actually that we're going to find that it's actually to some extent a mirror of the way human cognition works at some level of of abstraction i mean not precise. yeah i i tend to think so i think overall it, it's kind of like this question
0: is tricky because it, it depends on like what do you, like what do you mean by like similar or something like that but i think like in general um i think that as you scale up these models and and train them on more data like basically as you train them on more data like you're kind of restricting um the space of possibilities more and more in some sense um so like maybe and i'm actually looking at at this um in some experiments currently um you know early in training when the model has only seen you know a, a few thousand examples of of human text or something um you know you shouldn't expect that it's learned anything like uh, what humans do right um it's mm-hmm. probably just using very simple heuristics but as it learns more and more um and it gets better and better at at predicting um, human text like I yeah I, I do tend to think that like it's you know it there, there might not be like a literal one-to-one mapping between like circuits in like a human brain and circuits in, in the AI's brain but but I would say that um the mechanisms of learning are are quite robust like you, you don't tend to find that um on like some new type of text um that the model hasn't seen before it like goes crazy. Um, it usually like kind of reacts in like a fairly reasonable way. That's um, kind of human,
1: like. Okay. Well, listen, we've been talking close to an hour, and what I uh, usually do on the podcast is, uh, you know, do a, a lot, mo- most of the conversation, or at least half of it, um, in public, and then uh, the rest. The overtime segment is for paid subscribers, non-zero newsletter, and you have been kind enough to stick around for that. So we're going to keep talking, but, uh, but, uh, once we're in overtime, that'll, uh, the only way to to get access to that is, uh, to go to the non-zero newsletter and subscribe. There's also a link in, uh, the show notes on your podcast app. Um, and, uh, I of course encourage people to do that. There's other stuff you get, uh, in, in the newsletter itself. Um, but you also get, uh, access to all the overtimes, uh, in the, uh, in the podcast. Um, before we go into overtime, I want to give you a chance to say anything else that you think you really want to add uh, f- for the benefit of the audience that's been with us so far, but may not be with us for the rest of this. Um, even like something mundane, like what's your Twitter handle? I know you're active on Twitter. Um, yeah. My so my Twitter handle is just Nora Belrose. Um, mm-hmm. My first and last
0: name. Um, so yeah you can follow me there um I guess also we do so I uh, so this is definitely separate from a Luther to be clear this is not an a Luther thing but uh separate from a Luther I do have well me and a few other people have this um kind of blog website called uh optimists.ai that's like Optimist with an s. Uh, AI um and we do have some uh, blog posts there that kind of make the case for like being fairly optimistic about uh, the controllability um, of future AI systems. So.
1: You're my second consecutive optimistic AI person. I, I taped uh, a conversation with Reed Hoffman and I think you're the only two optimists I, I've had on. So I'm starting to balance the scales here. Uh, and and one of the uh, pessimists was the person who founded Eleuther, by the way, Eleuther, E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R. Mm-hmm. Um E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R. Connor Leahy, whom you know, who's still on the board. Uh, but, um, he, he's now started to conjecture AI and is also doing, I guess, interpretability and alignment stuff. Right. Um, and, and so anyway, people, uh, that is in that conversation yeah. in my, is in the archives, uh, from the beginning, a Luther has been kind of a champion of open source. Mm-hmm. And, our, and when we in, get into overtime, I want to ask you why you're not as worried about open source as, uh, some people and, and, and. Uh, and ask you a number of other things. But anyway, thanks everybody's. who's uh, stayed oh, with Oh, sorry, us. I should just... Yeah, sure. Oh, sorry, just one last thing.
0: And that, yeah, uh, I should also mention Eleuther.ai is, is like the website of Eleutherai. And right. we have a, a Discord server. You can actually you just publicly go um, to that. It's like on the website, Eleuther.ai You can go to the Discord server. So okay. um, that's, that's where you can find me.
1: Okay. And now we will uh, head into overtime.